We're reading from Psalm 3 this evening. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all round. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Father, our deep desire tonight is to know you better. And we are ever so grateful that you have provided for us your word that we might do just that. And so we ask now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit's help to listen and to be nourished by what you are saying here in your scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do keep your Bibles open at Psalm 3. Um, we'll be taking a good look at it uh, this evening. Uh, a couple of years ago, I took a trip down to Kent um, with a friend to visit another friend who was working down that way. Kent is unbelievably difficult to get to. That's neither here nor there. That's just a comment on what was a hard time for me. About 17 buses, four trains, and a flight. But we made it. Uh, the trip included a visit to Chartwell, which was the country home of Winston Churchill. Now, I'm a big Churchill fan, so I was delighted that we were able to go and take in Chartwell. I guess I was struck by a couple of things as we walked around the house, as we toured the grounds. Firstly, that in some ways, much about the home was just remarkably normal. Churchill had a kitchen. I have a kitchen. Churchill had a bedroom. I have a bedroom. He had a bathroom. There were family pictures on the wall and an albeit large garden which he tended. Quite ordinary. However, the second thing that struck me and gave me pause for thought was the study. There was the desk, the chair, piles of papers, books upon books upon books. And on the wall, there was this big plan, this three-dimensional plan of the D-Day landing. So there in the middle of the rolling Kentish countryside, England's most greenest and pleasantest of lands, that, that plan was a really stark reminder of a bleak period in the great man's history and a bleak period in the nation's history, a time when the future looked quite uncertain. I've been reading the book, The Darkest Hour, recently, which charts Churchill in the early days of the war. I've not seen the film yet, because one always ought to read the book before one sees the film. And on appointment, the book says, as Prime Minister in May 1940, Churchill's initial comments, his words to the House of Commons, were, were quite short for Churchill. They, were, they weren't standing on ceremony. He promised the nation his blood, his sweat, his toil, his tears. But the words that lingered were these. 
Without victory, he said, without victory, there is no survival. Without victory, there is no survival. Many surrounding the nation, many threats on all sides, an uncertain future and an impossible enemy. Without victory, there is no survival. And I don't doubt that words like that must have run through the head of our psalmist, King David, this evening. Verses 7 and 8, which we'll come back to later in, in some more detail, I think reflect that David is all too aware that without God's help, without God's intervention, then there will be no survival for him. None at all. These are real words. They're true and real as in honest from David in what is a dark and bleak and grim period in the great king's history. And we're going to look at his words under three headings, which are just on the back of your service sheet. Firstly, David's song. So what does this psalm teach us about David's God, who is our God? Jesus' song. How does Jesus fit into all of this? We know that the Bible is one story, that it's all about Christ. So how does, how does Jesus fit into the words of Psalm 3? And finally, our song. What can we take into the next week from Psalm 3 for ourselves? Well, firstly, David's song. Um, the context of this psalm is 2 Samuel chapters 12 through to 18, which was a dark chunk in the history of Israel's greatest king. David's very much loved son, Absalom, has lured his father into a false sense of security. Absalom left Jerusalem with his father's blessing to do so, to go up to Hebron. He says, I'm going to go to Hebron, and I'm going to offer sacrifices to God there, to Yahweh. And David says, by all means, on you go. That sounds innocuous. At Hebron, however, Absalom stages a takeover bid. He has himself anointed as king. And if you were to read through the narrative in 2 Samuel, you'll see that this coup is the result of years of currying the favor of the men of Israel, winning their hearts, winning their minds. News reaches Jerusalem of Absalom's power grab. And here is David, the mighty warrior king who has taken down the Philistines. He destroyed Goliath. What will he do in the face of this, this overthrow? Well, he flees. He runs. He escapes from Jerusalem. And he goes with those who still support him into the wilderness. His son has turned against him. His counselors, we read too, have left him. And the hearts of the men of Israel belong to a different king now, to Absalom. And that is where our psalm this evening falls, when David is on the run for his life. I think it's remarkable to consider King David in this position, him, that mighty king, so weak and afraid and bitter, perhaps, bitter too. The situation he's in, looking and feeling impossible. And that's most evident from the text of the psalm. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. That repetition of many. Many are my foes, he writes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is overwhelmed 
by an opposition that appears to be insurmountable. Victory looks impossible. Survival looks impossible. And notice the taunts as well in, in verse 2 regarding his salvation. David's own people are saying, there is no rescue for him from God. And also, I think in the broader sense of salvation, David, it looks as though you have stepped out with God's plan and purposes because a new king is in charge. And what about you, David? Well, you look weak. You were weak as well in the past. You were weak with Bathsheba, weren't you? And you were weak with your son, Absalom. You fled. So there can be no salvation for you, surely. And in any event, why would God care for David after the things he has done? Everything um, that has been set in motion, this event that we read about here in Psalm 3, has all stemmed from a few moments of pleasure with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, with Bathsheba. And as Nathan the prophet says to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the sword will never depart from your house. And that's true. His son Amnon was already dead. He'd been killed by Absalom. Amnon had raped David's daughter, his sister Tamar. And now Absalom, the son that David loves, has come against him. It's a bleak situation. One of the purposes of the Psalter is, I think, to teach us how to pray. And I think the language here invites us to be real and honest with God. If King David, in the midst of all that mess, can turn with grit and really bear his heart before God, then how much more can we? You know, the return to work on Tuesday after the bank holiday weekend, that overbearing line manager, the inbox that keeps filling up, the expectations from patients or clients or pupils or fellow workers that just seem to be utterly impossible to meet. Or maybe it's time extended with the family over the, the holiday weekend. For some people, time with family is hard. And maybe that seems impossible, or perhaps it's the stress of exams for uni or school, the burden of meeting necessary conditions for that job or that entrance into university. Now, what I'm not doing is drawing a distinction, or well, I'm not drawing a direct line between the strains of higher physics and the helplessness of David's situation, although in my mind both are comparable. But what I am saying is this, that the Lord wants to know about all of that. He wants to know about all of that. And David shows us with his honest language how we can indeed bring the impossible to God. And we can do that because behind, well, behind the impossible situation is the refreshing reality that biblical perspective always brings. The but of verse 3. That's the turning point in the psalm. The but of verse 3 is crucial. It moves us away from what David is feeling, which is terrible, to what he knows. He knows that God is protecting him. In the midst of this battle, God is like a shield to David. God is David's glory. Now, glory here, I think, means more than just a shining presence of God. What glory here also means is something akin to utter reality. 
utter solidity, David is saying that God is what is more real to him, even in the midst of mess, than anything else. God is more real to him than anything else. God is also the one who, lifter of my head, verse 3, brings true comfort. Do you know, God knows all about David's sin. All about it, yet David still cries out. And because God is gracious and merciful, that's his character, God listens and he answers, verse 4, And so David rests. Now, I don't think his troubles have vanished in verse 6. I don't think um, we are, you know, I don't think we are in the realm of naive denial of the difficult and the hard. We never are with the Bible. The Bible is good at calling out the elephants in the room, the hard things. So David's fears have not been swept away, but David appears to recognize that all he can do in this situation is trust in God. And so God holds his king through the night. Verse 5, he sustains him. And in practice, in the, in the narrative in Second Samuel, that looked like word reaching David and those with him, that Absalom was on his way, and he was on his way to, to kill David. And David found out with enough time to allow himself and all who were with them to cross the Jordan because that's where they were camped into safety. God protecting, God sustaining his chosen king. Now I think that verse 6, the words of David there, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all round. I think a statement like that, a view like that, would no doubt have looked just remarkably foolish, wouldn't it, to those around David? And perhaps most so to his enemies, who very much have the upper hand. They have the men, they have Jerusalem. But perhaps also to those who are with David. You know, why, why still trust God? Why, why bother? Why keep going with one David who very much seems to have abandoned you, who have left you? Now, we are not David but life on this earth has not changed so much. Times when trusting in God looks to be, you know, completely absurd. Completely absurd. But when God's people choose, because they know what he is like, to continue to trust and wait on him as David did. Now, why do that? Well, because God hasn't changed. We are not David, are we? But we do have David's God who has not changed. During the Second World War, there was a missionary. <laughs> I'm sure there were many. But there was one in particular whose name was Darlene Diebler-Rose, who was the author of a book called Evidence Not Seen. I love a missionary story, and I would you know, commend it to you if you're needing some summer reading. Um, Darlene was imprisoned for four years in New Guinea, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And she writes about how she was beaten and starved. She became very ill with numerous tropical diseases. She lived in fear, constant fear of rape from the drunk prison guards. And she was living in this total information vacuum. She, she hadn't seen her husband since she was arrested. And, and actually, she never saw him again. Years of mission work, reflecting back on that, apparently thwarted by the war. 
and she had no knowledge of the wider progress of the war. And one night, she writes, as she was feeling particularly overwhelmed, she recalls sitting in her prison cell, she is down to her last blackened moldy banana, and she writes these words, I was assured that my faith rested not on feelings, not on moments of ecstasy, but on the person of my matchless, changeless Savior, in whom is no shadow caused by turning. She relied on the evidence of things unseen. Her faith was stripped of feelings and the trappings of religion. All she had left was raw trust in God and his purposes. The evidence of things unseen. And likewise with David. And I think we see that most clearly in verses 7 and 8 of our psalm. These verses are the prayer of the king for his people. And as things go for the king, so they go for the people. These verses really are a prayer then for all of Israel. So as David is praying for himself, he is praying for the nation. And he uses language in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, that recalls the exodus. David is crying out for rescue and for his enemies to be defeated. As he prays for himself, that's him praying these things for those under his reign. And at a time of battle, that language of fight in verse 7, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. That language, I think, helps us to grasp how God will bring his enemies down, how there will be victory. And David prays like that because he knows that without such total victory, he will not survive. He won't. And his assurance is that such victory will come. The language suggests, doesn't it, that he has no doubts about that at all because he knows what God is like. In the end, David was restored to Jerusalem. Absalom was killed in a brief battle. He met quite a grisly end. His body was thrown into a pit and it was laid over with heavy stones and that was the end of Absalom and his coup because God had heard the prayer, the cries of his king. So David remembered who God is. David trusted God's purposes and David prayed. And as for David, I think it's right to say, so for us, remember, trust, pray. A question, um, and I think it's a good one to ask whenever we are in the Psalms, in what way is this the song of Jesus? In, in what way is this the song of Jesus, who is God's perfect king? Well, we know from Second Samuel chapter 15 that David on fleeing Jerusalem, goes to pray and mourn on the Mount of Olives. Sounds familiar, Mount of Olives. Jesus prays too, betrayed and alone, surrounded by foes on the same mountain. The difference between David and Jesus is that where David carries his own sin up the mountain to pray that day, Jesus carries our sin. 
So Jesus is mocked, and he feels the weight of verses 1 and 2 of our psalm. He's mocked, ridiculed, and abandoned, not because of anything he did, but because of us. Not for himself, but for us. And remember verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God, no salvation for David. Well, the same taunts were thrown at Jesus. The cries as he rides into Jerusalem initially were Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, welcome, praise, worship, adoration, hope. But very quickly soon turned at Golgotha to, well, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. There is no salvation for him in God. Weak, foolish, alone, and come down from the cross. He saved others. Come down from the cross. There is no salvation for him in God. Jesus felt the weight of all of that. Verse 5. Jesus was a king who trusted his father completely, as weak and as foolish as it might have looked. And he does so knowing that his father will sustain him. Verse 7, in dying on a cross for our sin, Jesus strikes our enemies and God's enemies on the cheek. He breaks their teeth on the cross by triumphing over death and bringing a complete victory for his people, a victory without which there would be no survival. As God rescued David, so he rescues us through Christ and brings us salvation from the impossible. That's why we can say salvation belongs to the, to, to the Lord. In Christ, God achieves a victory far greater than the Exodus, whose events David recalls with the language of this psalm. It's a victory far greater than rescuing a beleaguered king from a dangerous and power-hungry son. He shuts up death itself, that greatest of enemies. And so in Psalm 3, in Jesus, this is not the song of that world-weary, frightened king on the run, but instead of a mighty savior whose complete trust in God wins victory and survival for all who trust in him. And that is good news. David's song, Jesus' song, our song. You know, finally, I say finally, but I know over the page I've got a conclusion. So I'm going to say it again. Spoilers. Finally, what about us? What about us? Can we sing this song? What does, what does this teach us? Well, we long... I know I long, and I'm sure we all long, don't we, for God's enemies to be proved wrong. We long for the victory of God's chosen king over those who ridicule Christ or who persecute his people, who make life difficult for those who trust in him. We long to see as well, don't we, verses 7 and 8, fulfilled completely when we, like the psalmist, feel overwhelmed by life, by sin, by hurt, and by that opposition to the gospel. And so, when we long like that, we can remember Jesus' total victory over his enemies. 
that striking them down, that breaking of their teeth, keeping hold of God's character and promises. In short, when all feels lost, like David did feel that night in the wilderness, remain close to God. Remain close to God. That's where David puts his hope of comfort and deliverance. So put your trust in him. Now, I want to be clear because I'm, I'm really conscious that that's, it can seem quite a trite thing to say that, can't it, sometimes? Trust God when it's hard. That can perhaps seem easy to say, trite to say. But it's not always an easy thing to do, is it? Particularly when we might feel bowled over and weak and opposed. So why is it not a trite thing to say? Because we see it here in God's true and unchanging word. And because we can see it here in the pages of our Bible, we can say it with confidence. Put your trust in him. It was good enough for David. It was good enough for Jesus. And it is good enough for us. And suffice to say that I firmly believe this is not right because I know that I have, like many of us here this evening, will have felt those longings that I mentioned earlier. And sometimes I, perhaps like you, have felt them in the darkest of moments. Maybe you too have lain down like David or like me, just never wanting to get up again. But if what we know about God is true, which it is, if we believe we can take the psalmist at his word, which we can, and if Jesus really has won total victory, which he has, then placing our hope in Christ, even in the darkest hours, even at our weakest points, is never foolish, it's never weak, but it's always what is best. I think Psalm 3 is also a helpful corrective to the times when we let what we feel override what we know. I, I feel terrible sometimes. Sometimes I feel sad. Sometimes I feel grumpy. Sometimes I'm moody to be around. Sometimes I don't do my dishes. And I reckon that's true for some of you as well. And we know even in those dark times where we feel low, we can take great encouragement from this psalm because the psalm does not end in verse 2. Yes, our feelings matter. Yes, God is concerned with that. But the psalm does not finish in verse 2. Verse 3, remember that but. We must let what we know about God equip us to tackle head-on the opposition we face in Christian life, whatever shape and form that might take. So remember the but of verse 3. Let what we know about God equip us to tackle head-on the opposition that we face. Now, finally, something I think is 
good to do with a SAM is to zoom out after you've spent some time looking at it and just looking at it and surveying it as a whole. What does this whole SAM teach us about God? It's another good question to ask when we're in the Psalter. Well, I think if we cast our eye over the SAM, it shows us that God, that he listens, that he sustains, that he answers, that he blesses, that he is in the business of defending his people and that he's in the business of winning complete victory. I think it shows us that he is more real than anything else. Remember that glory? More real than anything else. And that he is the lifter of heads. That he brings comfort. Therefore, there is no one more worthy of saying for David or us, that salvation belongs to him. And no one better to place our hope in, even in the bleakest of times, the darkest of moments, or the most impossible of situations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the words of King David in this psalm. We thank you for their honesty, for their grit. We praise you that we have words like this in our Bible which help us to pray when we don't know how, when perhaps we, like David, feel overwhelmed, completely boxed in, flat and spent. We thank you, Lord, too, that through Christ, the words of the psalm are true, that in him you have arisen and that you have defeated your enemies completely through the cross. You have triumphed over even death. And we worship you, God, and bless you for that victory. We pray now, Lord, that you would root the truths of your word here deep into our hearts. Help us to hold fast to them as we look to the week ahead. Help us to remember who you are, to trust you because of what we know is true, even when our feelings perhaps dictate otherwise. And finally, Lord, help us to be people who pray like David and like Christ, even in the hardest of times. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.